summer skins british import skins to a level of scrutiny it definitely deserves uh i am matthew rather ryan Sheely is a big fat douchebag and with me uh on the podcast is uh white knight hero jordan stokes jordan <laughs> I, I i missed you so much last week being stuck alone on a skype call with Sheely. uh the odor First of assume, all, was unbearable. Uh, I assume and, that you were you were thinking about me the whole time. <laughs> I absolutely was. Um, right, <laughs> I absolutely was. I did everything I could to make myself look like a musicological conference. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> Uh, so um, we're uh, we're in the middle. Of, well, no, we're at the beginning still of the second series of Skins, which uh, you can find on Netflix. Uh, the show that we're um, watching and commenting on until Gossip Girl and Glee return in the fall. Uh, who uh, we are going to do today? Uh, uh, series two, episode two, uh, which is the sketch episode. Uh, because we didn't really get to it last week. Uh, Ryan and I had intended to get, to get to it, but then so much stuff came up that we didn't end up uh, really getting to it. Uh, and it is, it is fortunate. I hate it when, say, when people say fortuitous, which means accidental, uh, to mean fortunate, uh, which means good, right? Um, uh, that Jordan is here for this one because uh, he, is a, he is a musicologist and there is much socio-musicology to be done uh, in these episodes. So we'll, we'll uh, launch right in, um, uh, pausing only to say that if you want to join the conversation, uh, we love your reading responses. There, there are a couple. I don't think we're going to get to them this time, but next time we'll make sure that we get to some of the, the listener mail. We love the reading responses. There's a little more about slash fiction. And um, uh, and uh, a couple of uh, a couple of really convincing auditions for uh, for uh, guest spots uh, or guest uh, guest hosting duties. Um, wh- uh, <laughs> and I, I love the kind of the authenticity metric, right? Like uh, so, uh, someone wrote in and said, "I actually am one of these fucking teenagers," uh, hmm. you know. So um, and uh, <laughs> right, so. Uh, uh, you should you should have me on the uh, you should have me on the show. That's uh, I like that I like that appeal to authenticity. You know what I mean? Because so much right, of what right. we talk about is is artifice and representation, um, but there is a uh, there is a dynamic of of authenticity, and th- there is a sense to which when we're talking about these fucking teenagers, we just can't get it. Like you and I can't. Yeah, especially with uh, with skins, right? Where they went out of their way to recruit actual teenage writers and actual teenage actors, yeah. or if not teenage, like recently post teenage. So we should really be uh, we should just bow out and uh, and have like you know cloud source the entire podcast. We should, but the you know uh, along with um, along with a, a variety of medical ailments and receding hairlines, our uh, our age confers on us great wisdom and experience uh, <laughs> through which to view. Through through which to view uh, the lens of uh, a lens through which to view these these fucking teenagers, and we basically spend... that that lens being having watched Dawson's Creek when it was first aired. Right, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um... Hey, let me ask you this: Does fortuitous really have no positive uh, implications at all? Is it just surprise? It can mean uh, it can mean um, uh, an accidental. It can mean accidental good fortune, but a fortuitous meeting really means an accidental an accidental meeting. I suppose I suppose you wouldn't use it to mean uh, something that sucks. That yeah, happens. like you don't you don't like walk outside and fortuitously step in a pile of dog poop, right? But no. like I, I think that maybe maybe you could, but it's just one of those cases where the the wrong meaning has corrupted the right meaning, so that now the only like really acceptable meaning is something that is both by chance and good, right? Um, yeah, sure. And I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess by analogy to fortunate, it can mean the other one. Oh, not to get off on a, on a tangent, but what the hell the other one, um, <laughs> my that, goal is to make sure that we don't get to the sketch episode of this <laughs> ever, week either. <laughs> ever. 
<laughs> we will we will approach this sketch, sketch episode asymptotically uh, <laughs> and never never quite get there and the podcast will will carry on to infinity getting closer and closer to a sketch a sketch tries to get closer and closer to to maxi but uh but doesn't um my other the other word that people misuse that i am on a i'm on a personal holy war to get them to stop is a uh, penultimate Mm-hmm. Uh, also nonplussed. Ooh, three here. Uh, fortuitous, penultimate, and nonplussed. For, uh, fortuitous means accidental, uh, mm-hmm. maybe positive, but uh, accidental. Um, nonplussed means surprised. It Rather doesn't than mean, unimpressed. Yeah, it doesn't mean unimpressed or disaffected. It means surprised. Uh, now, I, I love the kind of uh, the mental etymology that goes into... Uh, nonplussed it's the sort of thing that you would really applaud a four-year-old for doing for being able to like tease out the implications as though like as though being impressed or being moved or you know uh any of those things as though those were pluses and you you were not uh, any of them it's it's newspeak right you can be nonplussed you can be double plus nonplussed right (laughs) and uh Oh, what's the next one? Penultimate. It doesn't mean really, really ultimate. It means second to last. Mm-hmm. Penultimate. Ultimate, penultimate, and anti-penultimate mean last, second to last, and third to last. So, uh, pausing only to say all that, I guess, and to say that you can reach us with reading responses, with auditions for uh, co-hosts, and um, with anything you like at uh, tftpodcast at overthinkingit.com, on the Twitters at tftpodcast, or uh, by phone or text at 20FATJOG01. That's 203-285-6401. So, uh, you know, we've, we've finally arrived uh, at, at the ground zero of our critical discussion. <laughs> at, at, the, uh, at the text itself. <laughs> this is, enjoy this moment, everyone out there in podcast land, because this is as close as we're going to get to it. The minute we, like, actually speak we will just be departing further and further from uh from the show that you all watched right uh so a uh, sketch in which uh in which lucy um stalks uh maxi taking uh, a lot of pictures of him fantasizing about him breaking into his uh his apartment um we, we talked about this ryan and i talked about this uh i think there are a couple of aspects on on this show that are played um not totally for shock value uh, that you just would not see on an American show. Oh, one is, and we talked about this last week, one is an extended close-up on a character who just doesn't look that good. Even, uh, you know, in television, like, uh, even, the, uh, even the ugly people are, are good-looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and it turns out that that sketch actually cleans up pretty nice. You know, she, she puts on a nice dress and whatnot to go seduce Anwar at the end. Um, but at the beginning, when she's when she's kind of mentally inserting herself into singing the the uh, song from Osama the musical, uh, she is not looking so good, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, they just hold on that. The other is a is a depiction of a handicap that is not. Um, I mean, a disabled person who is kind of not. I don't know. Uh, d- uh, that's more to do with the reality of the experience than to do with um, uh, with some kind of redemptive meaning, and, and you know, Artie falls prey to this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, it can get very romanticized. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I was kind of wondering? I uh, the thing with with Sketch and her mother, um, I feel like it, the show almost allows you to read it such that her mother. Um, may may not actually be disabled like all all of that business what what got me thinking about this is that the uh the cloth that she uses to tie her mother to the bed towards the end is like the same kind of material that she uses to bind down her breasts and i was wondering like to what degree you could think of the the mother as just being like sketches disgust for her own femininity and her own self um, and it, like just kind of this like grotesque bodily thing that she has to somehow move past if she's ever going to get to be with Maxie. It's like the uh, you know in 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 the heavy bear that goes with me. It's not actually a bear, right? Um, I don't think that it's quite something that uh, that you can bring out of it because there are cases where like uh, 
where Maxi interacts directly with the mother and so on. You know, you can't really do the Tyler Durden thing on uh, on this episode. But it's in, it's an interesting way to think about it, you know, to sort of read into that subtext and then maybe read it back into her behavior, how much of her stalking is because she kind of associates uh, herself with her mother and then with this kind of like, you know, helplessness and weakness and so on. Or sort of, uh, or sort of um, paralysis. Yeah, yeah. Like in inability to move. I mean, stalking, uh, you know, among erotically tinged crimes, stalking is um, uh, stalking insofar as it doesn't lead to assault. Right. Is unique in that it is kind of disembodied. Right. It's it is an intention, you know, and that uh, if the if the person being stalked doesn't know about it and never knows about it, uh, not that this. um uh, yeah, not that, not that you're, this... you're, you're trying to like avoid telling people, Hey, stalking is an awesome thing to do. No, it's not, it's yet... not, it's not an awesome thing to do. And there are people who are victims of it. And it's, it's very, very serious and bad when it happens. And there, there's that, that recent case with the, uh, TV news anchor who was filmed without knowing it in her hot- uh, hotel room. And like, no one is saying that, that, that these are good things, but we have to kind of step away from, we, uh, from the actual kind of moral content of the world when we consider works of art, I think. Think. And mm. so, like this is this is uh, this is an instance of me doing that. But don't send me hate mail about you know um, how your stalker ruined your life or something like that. It's ter- it's terrible when it happens in real life and it does real damage to people. But notionally, I mean, considered considered as an aspect of the representation of this episode, um, you know, uh, uh, there are a couple of implications to it. One is that it's it's just an intention, and that it is kind of disembodied. Uh, right, mm-hmm. which kind of rhymes with your, um, uh, kind of rhymes with with your observation that, like, in, in some sense, the the mother is is a part of her, figuratively, um, right, or right. a part of and, her, and like, yeah. and is so bodily, so kind of like they they play it up, they play up her paralysis as being kind of disgustingly bodily, um, and then whereas whereas Maxi is like all mind, all image. Yeah, is right. Uh, is virtual images in the digital camera, and his images on the um, uh, on the wall, and you know, all, and is is sort of images in in fantasy. And it's actually, I mean, there's a horror, there's a uh, kind of a horrified dualism, right? There's a horrified Cartesian dualism where it's like good, you know, good mind, bad body, because the body mm-hmm. is so so needy and insistent, and like right. you know, and, her mother, and... her mother uh, can't can't control her bladder and needs you know, need, sort of needs help doing everything. Um, right. Whereas, whereas the mind would rather be stalking, you know, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'd rather be stalking. And it, it, like, as, as so often that kind of dualism is projected onto male, female, right? Like you get, you get this a lot in horror movies where the, uh, the woman, specifically the maternal woman uh, becomes this kind of like monstrous body, um, opposed to that is the sort of the clean cerebral mind of the the male protagonist, um, which I mean it, it can get pretty offensive pretty quickly. But uh, as something that sort of speaks to the culture's collective id, uh, perhaps I mean I want to say that it's targeted towards a male audience because like most things are targeted towards a male audience, and yet like I know a lot of women who like horror movies and sort of experience them the same way. So I feel like this is something where like. The, the sexism isn't specifically that it's for men rather than for women, but rather our culture has an uneasy relationship with notions of the body and how that ties into sort of femaleness. Right. And also because women are because women bear children, you know what I mean? Because bodies come from women's bodies, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, right. In some very sort of <laughs> or, uh, or from Arnold Schwarzenegger's body. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know. Um, but he's he transcends gender, I think, right? <laughs> oh, indeed, it's this thing. The, the, when we get into discussions of of sexism, and you know, uh, there have been a few on overthinking it recently. It's um, it's uh, you know, it's funny. I'm reminded of something that uh, that Howard Zinn said about um about political conspiracy. He said there is no political conspiracy, right? There there is no sort of group of 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 uh, old white men in a smoky room. But but the system almost in an organic way uh manages to perpetuate itself. 
as as you'd expect, really. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that that is to say, once you set up the the system a certain way, uh, conditions are such that perpetuation of the system becomes the path of least resistance. And mm-hmm. you know, so so with sexism, you know what I mean. There's sexism in the culture, and there's sexism sort of internalized into each of us. And so it's not it's not a matter of you know specific intentional misogyny. Uh, it's and and I think it's not necessarily useful to define it that way and to um, to kind of ascribe malicious agency to it. I, I'd say that your way of reading it that you that you kind of just brought out is a lot more useful a lot of the time. That is to say. It's a reflection of something in the culture and being kind of a horror movie. And I was struck by the horror movie aspects of this episode, uh, you know, not and like the the kind of the binding the mother to the bed and, you know, um, all all these things sort of deliberate, you know what I mean? Deliberate acts of of cruelty um, that. uh, uh, Yes, it's a uh, it's a horror or a, a sort of distorted reflection, a phantasmagoric reflection sometimes, but it, but it's a uh, it's a reflection of of something that's out there and not of a specific malicious uh, intent. Mm-hmm. Sure, a sure. lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we, we wouldn't want to discount the possibility of malicious intent. Because, no, yeah, like, but then you're of... dealing then you're dealing with propaganda and not with not with a work of art. You know what I mean? And that's and and, and I think that we can distinguish between those two things. Well, I don't know, potato, potato, right? <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's actually a lot harder to distinguish between those two. Like sometimes uh, propaganda is a work of art that you disagree with, but um, but you know. But as as good right thinking uh, liberal humanists, yes, we can. You and I can make that distinction. Others right. may disagree with what we what we choose to make it. Exactly. You know, there's um in uh, in Milton's Areopagitica, it's this. Uh, I think we've talked about it before. Probably Fenzel and me. It's this passionately argued uh, defense of free speech, right against the 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 censorship of the the state that he was facing at the time. It's this passionate defense of free speech, except for Catholics. You know. <laughs> Them we burn. Their books we throw straight on the fire, right? And that, and uh, the the um, Miltonist and and literary critic Stanley Fish, uh, formerly of Duke, then of um, oh UIC University of Illinois Chicago, and now of uh, Florida, where he is semi-retired, I guess. Uh, that uh, he has written about this that every sort of um every community you know has an act of sort of exclusion at its you know root in its dark underbelly somewhere mm-hmm. and for for good you know right thinking liberal humanists like us uh who sort of accept all points of view right in some sense as as equally valid insofar as they are points of view mm-hmm. uh and arise from somewhere right the um the the uh the one point of view that we can't tolerate is that we're wrong, you know, and that we shouldn't do that. Right. Sure. And that, and that, you know, that even in sort of, even in, in, you know, very accepting, very relativist, relativistic, uh, you know, liberal humanism like ours, uh, we are, uh, we are as bad as Milton saying, uh, except for Catholics, them, uh, them we burn. Right. Right. No, I, I, I think that's very, very true. There's every, every, every us implies a them and so on. And like, it does seem, although I don't know, like the fact that we can sit here and say, well, the one point of view that we don't tolerate is the idea that there are some points of view that must not be tolerated. I wonder if, uh, if that was really the problem, we probably wouldn't be able to admit it to ourselves, you know? I don't know. I think, I think being able to think your way, uh, around an issue doesn't necessarily mean you're not you're not stuck within the confines of the issue, right? Yeah. One of one of Stanley Fish's big big things, and this is the thing that you know gets him vilified in a lot of circles, and probably rightly so, uh, is that is is his very unique take on um, uh, on the evacuation of God, right? On moral relativism, because um, he takes the position that look. Uh, there may or may not be there may or may not be a god there may or may not be uh, an absolute knowledge and a lot of his work is about interpretive communities um there may or may not be an absolute knowledge uh we don't know we have no recourse to know and we have no recourse to uh 
to find out what the uh, absolute right or the absolute wrong might be. So we go around just making assertions about it because we can't, there's no other way to carry on with your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, sort of identifying that problem, uh, you know, if you buy that analysis, uh, you see that problem and you, you, understanding it does not help you, um, help you think your way out of it. You know, it's true. I mean, he, he has there gone ahead and said, look, this is true. There is no truth. Right. It, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you see, and, and this is the very slippery thing that, that he would say. He would say, no, 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 because he talks like that. I had lunch with him once. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, uh, I haven't said that there is no truth. I have said that there may or may not be a truth. We just don't have the capacity to know whether right. there, whether right. there is or not. And that's the, I mean, that's, he's, he's the sort of dickhead who will do things when, when he's speaking and someone rises to raise an objection in the, you know, in the comment period, he'll say, ah, nah, 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 stop. I'm going to make your objection for you because I've heard it a million times before and can formulate it far better than you can. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is very, which is very dickish. And you can see why I admire him a lot. Right, right. He's, he's really what you've modeled your life around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except for the fashion sense, he he dresses like a man uh, far too uh, far too uh, far too young for him. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so what are we talking like <laughs> shirts? <laughs> sketch, sketch in the body. Yeah, yeah, sketch in the body. Sketch, sketch is an interesting name, actually. Come come to think of it, right? Because it means sort of incompletely realized, and it also means it's one of those words like sketchy is one of those. Um, uh, one of those words. I don't know if it was a uh, if it was slang in Britain, but in the states, it's it's slang for what creepy, right? Yeah, right, right. I mean, and like and both of those are sort of appropriate for her, specifically right? sort of sexually creepy. Yeah, because she's kind of she's kind of uh, what she's sort of arrested as a uh, as a person, like her kind of social uh, her inability to kind of function in the social world, mm-hmm. and and also because she is uh, she is. Um, Sort of creepy. I think I was making an apologia for for stalkers uh, when, when we when we sort of went off the rails. Right, right. That, that this show is it humanizes the stalker to a degree which it would be difficult to imagine Ameri- an American show doing that. You know, um, and I think that part of the reason it can get away with that is the structure that it has, where you know each episode is about a character. And uh, doesn't pretend to bring their arc to fruition, but you do at this point understand that this arc is going to be more or less abandoned, you know, in the next few episodes. Like, it'll, it'll come back up, but we're not going to stay with Sketch and sort of go through her whole uh, personal development from this point on. Rather, it's like it's a little window into her world. Um, and within her world, she is sympathetic, as everyone is within their their own particular world. Well, right? right, yeah, within the, I mean, within their own within their own mind. We've talked about a kind of psychological determinism that ultimately we don't we don't support uh, because you know people's minds are mysterious in some sense, and the best art kind of engages the mystery uh, of of people's psyches. But you know, um, you can kind of see where. Uh, where a normal personality would have gone off the rails given the set of pressures that Sketch is under. Right. And, like, well, one of those is her mother. But I think that it's what's really one of the things that's really nice about this episode is that it doesn't stay just with she has this home situation that's messed up. It also has uh, Osama the Musical. And I think that in <laughs> right. some ways Osama the Musical is meant to sort of explain why thought processes not quite as extreme as sketches, but similar to hers, can be, like, sort of fomented by, uh, by the culture that we find ourselves in. Can you, um, and the, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I will, I, will, uh, I will endeavor to do so. So Osama the Musical, right? It is, for those of you who didn't see the show, it is just what it sounds like. Actually, no, it's not just what it sounds like, because that sounds like um, it's going to be kind of a springtime for Hitler situation where the musical is about Osama bin Laden and Osama is singing the songs. And this is not the case. Uh, The musical is about kind of the last morning in the lives of those who were killed in the the 9-11 attacks. 
So it, like, it starts off with a, a bunch of people wearing business suits sort of dancing around the stage. Uh, the band is sitting up front wearing hats that look like skyscrapers. And like they're, they're singing songs like, you know, business is booming. Isn't it great to be an American at like the dawn of the 21st century, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's a number sung by the Boogie Woogie Bagel Boy uh, who wears a, a full bagel outfit. Um, and I'm really sad that we don't get to hear more of that because it sounded like more interesting music than most totally. of what yeah, the thing's about. Um, and then at, at the end, uh, everything blows up, predictably, right? I mean, spoiler alert. <laughs> Some of the musical ends with, uh, with everyone being killed. And then everyone comes back up and sings again kind of posthumously about how the fact that they've been blown up allows them to achieve romantic closure in their love lives. Right. Like, the the lyric is, uh, then came the day Osama blew us all away, and I finally knew how much I loved you, or something like that. Some such, yeah. Yeah. And this is is not a terribly uncommon way for romance plots to work. Yeah, this is, I mean, generically, right, this is the fallacy of the fortunate cancer, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, sure, sure. You know, right. And uh, but the, and 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 it's great that that's there. Um, I, I a lot of things are being mocked. I mean, a lot of things are being satirized in 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 this. But I think you're you're about to make a connection between the the uh, set of assumptions that undergirds a narrative where a terrible tragedy uh, has some sort of personal there's you know, there is some sort of fortuitous uh, personal um, benefits. <laughs> right, right, right. That, uh, that, that, you know, beyond... Well, actually, it's not just a terrible tragedy. See, that's the other thing. I, I, you say it's the, the fallacy of the, um, the fortunate cancer. And I think, like, that's actually just a subset, though, of the, the Lloyd Dobler fallacy, <laughs> which is that, like, our day-to-day lives are sort of dreary collages of beige, and love is the, the excessive moment. You know, anything that pushes, that sort of breaks through that tedium and is like a truly felt experience, that is what love relationships are based off of. So, like, you know, the the 9-11 catastrophe in this case is reduced to uh, Osama bin Laden standing outside of the World Trade Center holding a boombox over his head, right? And it allows people to to feel something genuine, you know, as as they blow up. Um, And I think that this is kind of... This is the narrative that Sketch wants to have happen with Maxie. Is that like if she does something extreme, like stalk him, like break into his house, like uh, like you know accuse the drama teacher of sexually assaulting her and uh, poison Michelle with the medics so that she can take the role on stage, that this will then inevitably result because of that extremity. Like, because there is a rupture there in a happy ever after ending between her and Maxie. And I think the moment where, like, so they do kiss on stage, right? And then Maxie sort of turns to her and says, like, I felt nothing at all. And she flips out and slaps him and screams, like, that's not how it's supposed to work and so on. When, uh, when Chris in the audience gets up and says, now that's an ending, I feel like it's, you know, he's talking right to the audience, right? Being like, this is where these things actually lead you is, uh, you know, rupture is just, uh, just pain. Honestly. Do, you, do you remember, uh, do you remember the, the arrested development where, um, Tobias says is something happens with Tobias and he says, you know, if this were a movie a week of a week, the movie of the week, this would be our act break. And, <laughs> yeah. and the narrator comes on and says, but it wasn't. And it continues. Yeah. And then something else happens. And then, then, uh, Ron Howard as the narrator says, now that's an act break. And yeah, they cut right. to commercial. <laughs> now that's, uh, an ending. It struck me that the boom box would actually be a far more offensive title for anything having to do with suicide bombing, you know, being in a, being in a building that blows up or something. Well, and this like is, that. this is actually the other thing that, that occurred to me. And I'm going to get myself in trouble by saying this because I do not really know that much about geopolitics. Now I wish that we did have Shuli here, which is that I think that this kind of narrative where, like, your day-to-day lives are so boring, you need an extreme action to give them some kind of significance, is probably what is used to recruit people to be suicide bombers, you know? It's not, it's more than boring. It's, you know what I mean, are so intolerably oppressive. Well, but I mean, intolerably oppressive, and then, like, the specific version of that that we, that we have in our society is boring. 
you know? Yeah. And I mean, this is a thing that like, not, not everyone who becomes a violent fundamentalist, whether it's, you know, a suicide bomber or blowing up abortion critic clinics or like being in the, the weather underground or whatever it is, not everyone comes from a intolerably oppressive background, but they come from a background that they find intolerable somehow. And the idea that like the only way to make change is through some kind of radical event, you know, um, the, like the idea of incremental change or of, uh, of like meeting someone and becoming friends first and then gradually realizing that you like them a whole lot. And, uh, and like that being a, a romantic relationship that's successful is like, you know, that, that's not really how we tend to parse these things. Um, not just in our culture, but in many cultures, I think there's this kind of cult of the the extreme as the only way to to be real uh, that has been tremendously successful as an idea. Sure, has, yeah, you know. Uh, I mean, you think of like oh, phenomena is diverse as like vision quests, uh, mm-hmm. right? Uh, all kinds of ascetic uh, behavior, um, yeah. and as well as uh, I mean, a lot of it is erotically tinged, right? Because those are the moments of kind of extremis. Uh, that you know a person sort of normally experiences in their life and right they would have to be the uh you know the species wants to keep on perpetuating perpetuating itself down through the generations mm-hmm. um right so Let's- i'm i'm thinking of like a lot of uh oh a lot of there's a a novel by Gide called the immoralist um the, uh there's the film wild uh, actually, the the film Wild about Oscar Wilde with uh, uh, Stephen, what's his name, Ray, right, uh, as Oscar Wilde, where he says uh, after his first homosexual experience, he says um, after his first time having sex with a man, he says uh, how, is, uh, the guy says to him, "How do you feel?" And he says, "Like a like a city that's been under siege, and suddenly the <laughs> gates are thrown open. The gates being presumably." Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> the gates are thrown open and there's art and commerce and a great flowering of, uh, you know, of, of, um, of, of a renaissance. Uh, and that, and that's, uh, that's sort of, that's sort of like that, that, that it takes an, and, um, at, you know, in in all the stuff and all the gay stuff I'm talking about, um, uh, the transgression is the is the extreme aspect of it. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. Let's well, also you keep I mean, trying to you keep trying to keep us on track. Well, no, no. I mean, this is really interesting stuff. I think, and the idea that um, the erotic tinge of it, right? Let's talk for a minute about the erotics in this episode because yeah. um, there's like the the scene. Where uh, Sketch is watching Maxie, like sort of voyeuristically, and then binding herself, that has a a very erotic charge. Not in the sense that like it arouses you to be watching it, but um, that that element of surveillance and uh, and control in the binding is something that like it it brings the scene to life. You know, it, it makes it very interesting to watch. Um, in a way that, like, I feel like often when people talk about something being erotic on, in, like, in a movie, in a book, and something like that, it doesn't necessarily mean sexy, right? It's, it's like, erotic has a slightly different connotation. And then the scene where she, uh, she breaks into Maxie's house and lies on his bed and begins to masturbate, that also is sort of, like, given um, an erotic feel. But the scene, the sex scene at the end is so decidedly non-erotic, right? right? Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. Well, it's, um, I mean, the, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the horror of female sexuality as, you know, as we've been talking and trying to think that, uh, trying to think of another character. There isn't another really aggressively sexual female character, is there? Right. Like, uh, uh, Michelle, um, is kind of pushed around and sort of used by a lot of guys. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and I mean, and she, she likes to sort of, uh, be desired, right? There are a few scenes where she sort of um, messes with Sid a little bit, but uh, she's not really into the idea of having sex. She just likes her ability to sort of control people through sexuality, right? Yeah. Um, Yes, exactly. Uh, Cassie gets turned down. Um, Jal is, is for all intents and purposes, androgynous to the point where it's such a surprise um, where she, in, in her episode, it, her first episode, it's such a surprise where, you know, she gets dolled up and looks pretty, uh, right, and, right. you know, and then gets hit on, um, the, the psychology teacher, what's her name? I've forgotten. 
I mean, yeah. she's sexually active, but not really, well, not predatory, which is surprising because she is, you know, sleeping with her student. But uh, it's really presented as not predatory. Yeah. We could argue whether it's good or bad, but like within the, within the artwork as such, she is not... Um, her sexuality is not presented as dangerous. No, and it's and in fact she, you know, she does the quote unquote right thing and tries to hold him off as mm. you know what I mean as long as it's possible until the the irresistible power of Chris's small dick, uh, <laughs> you know, exercises its its siren call and she she discovers that what she has desired all all along is not to play skin flute so much as skin piccolo. <laughs> But Only on the TFT podcast. <laughs> but uh, sketch is um, right. Sketch is sketch is the one with uh, with an aggressive, with a very, I mean, with a very assertive sexuality who puts who puts in place plans. I mean, they're they're right. sort of extra social plans. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, to. Um, uh, uh, to get herself uh, uh, paired off with Maxie, but you know she she puts in place plans, yeah. and it's it's, also right, it's sort of horrifying. All all the um, all the kind of the sex acts involve a kind of uh, uh, a kind of uh, violation or trex, tran, uh, or uh, transgression, whether it's a transgression of gender uh, mm-hmm. in her in her binding her breasts or a um, a sort of uh, physical transgression in terms of making Michelle sick or you know. Um, or yeah, or breaking and entering. Exactly. Um, yeah, the transgression of of someone else's property. Yeah. Right. I think that she's also she's the only as far as I know, she's the only character we've seen who appears to have a sex drive in the sense of seeking sensation. Like we see uh Sid spends a lot of time wanting to lose his virginity. Right. You feel like it's more that he's kind of embarrassed about uh about being a virgin, you know. Anwar certainly spends a lot of time like wishing that he could have sex with people, but it's presented as this very, very uh like childish um <laughs> it's you know, to, to go all Freud for a bit, it's more anal than phallic, his sure. obsession with sex, right? Um and uh, the bit at the end where he's like, you know, reciting the films of Hugh Grant, you know, that that's not something that one would do while actually having any kind of mature sex act, right? Like he, he wants to keep going for a while because he's heard that's what you're supposed to do in a sense. Yeah. Um, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't feel like, like actual desire on the part of the character. Wait, it's, Whereas, it's, not, hmm? it's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> We're all learning something today. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you're saying you've been doing it wrong. Yeah. Well, actually. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like so sketch is kind of interesting in that um she like I guess like maybe the other place we've seen this is Cassie's parents seem to like actually be interested in having sex with each other. Right. And that was also presented as kind of creepy, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah it's uh, right. Um, but yeah, and, and then like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting thing. So here, this is, a, this is probably a good place to bring up, uh, another thing about the episode that I found out after I had watched it. Um, in all of the, the three most sexual to my mind scenes in this, which are like the, the opening crawl where she is binding her breasts and watching Maxie through the window, the scene where she, uh, she breaks into his house and, uh, and pleasures herself on his bed and the uh, the very end of the sex scene with Anwar, there's this musical cue that comes up in the underscoring. And it's um, the version that I saw, the version on the DVD, is uh, a song that I haven't been able to track down, which is, I mean, it's a post-rock, maybe less post-rock and more like specifically post-Led Zeppelin's The Immigrant Song with like a lot of feedback distortion guitar and this like high wordless wailing. Um, and that in itself is kind of like a moment of rupture on the soundtrack, which points to these, uh, these sexual things as like um, either as sketches attempt to sort of violently bring some real meaning into her own life or the intrusion of her insanity upon the sort of normal space that all the other characters have been inhabiting. You know, you can read it either of those ways. What's really, really interesting to me is that um, I I like the song. I wanted to track it down. And it turns out that um, in the broadcasted version of Skins, originally, it was a different song. 
um, that they didn't get the rights to, so they switched it up for the DVD. And it's a, a song by a band called Aqualung called uh, Good Times Are Gonna Come. And it's much more kind of this, like, this wistful uh, yearning for a better life. So it kind of, uh, it kind of collapses that ambiguity. I really like the, um, you know, whatever song they, they had to settle for for the DVD better because it sort of keeps intact both the, the striving for something sort of good and true and real on Sketch's behalf and the sort of creepiness, the inherent creepiness of what she's doing. Right. Whereas if you just have it be, you know, like, oh, good times are going to come, then suddenly um, it becomes, you know, all of these things that she's doing are just because she wants those good times. And it becomes like a lot less, a lot less interesting as a character, and a lot less interesting as storytelling for me. The Hugh Grant movies were fantastic. Oh my god, I love that so much. <laughs> it's it's such a. Uh, I, I I feel kind of bad. Let me say for um for what's his name, Dev Patel, the guy who plays yeah. Anwar, because I feel like Anwar, out of all the characters, um, is sort of least. Uh, realistically drawn. I feel like he, he's much more of sort of a device than a, than a real character in his own right. But uh, the actor does a good job with it. And this this idea that like this is the other thing that sort of I feel like humanizes Sketch a little bit is that her she, these are her options. She can either hopelessly fantasize about uh, Maxie, who will never want anything to do with her, and that leads her down some horrible roads, right? Like, the things that she does are not good. They don't end well for her, etc., etc. The other option, though, is to be with this guy, Anwar, who is utterly unconcerned with her other than as sort of an object to have sex with. And what he will do as he's having sex with her is whisper into her ears the, uh, the collected film career of Hugh Grant. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, if you wanted a symbol for the kind of platitudes that, uh, that Hollywood and popular culture in general dispense about romance, right? Hugh Grant's filmography is... Or that, that, you know, or that if you want to be cynical, that men dispense to women when, you know, when they're trying to get them in bed or have yeah, got them sure. in bed even. Absolutely. And like, you know, this is, this is me putting on my, my serious overthinking cap, but I think the fact that he, uh, he stops on Bridget Jones, right. On, on Bridget Joe owns, and then it cuts to black. And like the last line sort of in post episode space is I never get to about a boy is really interesting because about a boy is a very kind of non-romantic comedy movie. It has a standard romantic comedy setup where, like, there's this feckless guy and this, uh, this woman who's a little bit more down to earth, and then they're drawn together by his friendship with her son, but then they don't end up getting together. You know, that, that turns out to be, like, the worst thing that could possibly happen. It never, they never even really start down that path, and instead they just form this non, non-traditional family unit where, like, he stands in the role of father to her son without having any kind of sexual relationship to the mother. And it's a very non-standard Hugh Grant movie in that. But, uh, but Anwar can never get to it when he's, when he's going through his, uh, his sexual litany. The, um, well, uh, you know, he, she's using him in a sense also. I mean, because we, we have a sense that her master plan has not... Uh, this has been a temporary setback and not a, a full... Uh, uh, you know, failure of her of her master plan, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Like Maxie's going to find out about this. Presumably. I mean, you could you could argue that maybe she does consider, like, when she first goes to seduce Anwar, like she's she's saying, like, okay, maybe that was the wrong move. Maybe I should try this other way. But as she's sort of lying there, she looks over and sees the picture of Maxie and says, like, actually, you know what? Like, it's back on because this 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 current situation is just not tenable, right? Or maybe it is tenable. I mean, maybe she's accepted this as the closest that she's going to get to Max. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Um, uh, Right? Like that, you know, the picture uh, at the end, you know, her her face, she's she's totally dissociated from Anwar and and what's what's actually going on. You have the sense that, I mean, with the music and in kind of the way that you described, she's she's kind of back in the fantasy and she, you know, she touches the picture, right? She even has Mm. a kind of talisman to uh, focus her... Um. Uh, focus her fantasy, right, right. Uh, uh, but she's, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the ending is. I think the ending is a little bit open ended. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Um, and that's, again, one of the sort of the strengths, I think, of this episode is it's, uh, it's refusure to really, refusure to bring closure, it's refusal <laughs> to bring closure to, uh, to, to the character, you know? Uh, does, um, is there anything more to say about Osama the Musical? Well, I, I would like to hear uh, your thoughts as someone who has taught who has done drama, that who has taught. done that well, who's taught drama to high school students as and also has uh has done things on stage that were nearly that bad uh, right like, you, you know, know what i mean in the trenches of the musical theater world it gets awfully guffman um, <laughs> right it certainly does and and uh i have definitely made my rent around christmas time uh, uh, you know, tap dancing in an elf suit for, uh, <laughs> you know, for my union wage. Um, so yeah. Okay. I, th- I mean, I think one of the things that's, that's being, being mocked, uh, here is the pretensions of, um, the pretensions of provincial drama teachers. Right. And, uh, this is not the first time, uh, that this has happened. My favorite episode of the Simpsons is from the fourth season and it's the, uh, a streetcar named Marge episode where it's a pretty good episode. It's honestly fantastic. <laughs> the, uh, the, you know, Iron Rand daycare center, the, mm-hmm. uh, the reference to the birds in the middle of it with all the toddlers, um, sucking their pacifiers. And then when they walk out of the daycare center, finally having gotten Maggie and it's like the scene in the birds where they go back and get the lovebirds in the cage and all the birds mm-hmm. are just sitting there and being creepy and not attacking, but just sitting there and being creepy. Right. Right after they've done that, Alfred Hitchcock walks in front of the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, yeah. in front of the, the frame and, um, the, uh, the, the, um, fantastic music right uh <laughs> long before the superdome where the and this was far before hurricane katrina so you know not you you can't really read any of that in, into it L- uh, long before the superdome where the saints of football play uh lived a city that the damned call home hear their hellish rondelay yeah, new orleans yeah. oh that's fantastic uh what else i could just quote lyrics from it uh yeah, i'm just that, that, i feel like the use of the word rondelay <laughs> in in a uh sort of community theater musical version of uh streetcar is like th- that sums up the kind of ambition that you're talking about and how how sort of silly it is, and how ultimately tragic it sometimes is. Sure, it's. I mean, it's like waiting. It's really like waiting for Guffman. Anyway, so um, there was a, uh, you know, there was a, and it was John Lovitz who voiced who voiced the character in the episode, right? The the um, yeah. small town. You people, you're the stars, right? <laughs> yeah, that guy, right? Absolutely, but um, you know. Uh, like, um, he says something at the beginning of the the episode, uh, like was, uh, was pushing my actors to the brink of insanity with method acting, uh, worth the, worth the, uh, human cost. I think the review third grade play enjoyed by all speaks for itself. (laughs) You know, and that like, (laughs) right. This is the thing or the, when, um, when uh, uh, Guffman talk, not Guffman. When uh, Corky Sinclair talks about his um, uh, uh, his version of, of backdraft, and Christopher Guest is is there and is is uh, interview uh, his talking head thing, being like, people don't like it when you take fire and you poke it at them. You poke it at them. You poke mm-hmm. it right in their faces. You know that this is uh, right. That this is the kind of this is the kind of ambition that's that's. Um, you know that's being mocked, and the the uh, the way you know it's being mocked is because they they choose it. It's not the the material is not merely bad; it's horrible, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's how um, <laughs> working, snake making, never stopping, never sleeping, working, making some for selling, some for keeping. <laughs> like it's <laughs> awful. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. Uh, so, um, oh God, oh, what was I going to say, uh, about this? Oh, right. And in a way, I, in a way that kind of, in a way it, it cuts, a, it, it, uh, cuts a little close, you know, for me, because, uh, I've been involved in so many horrible pieces of musical theater. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
I mean, the thing is, like, you know, I've I've done my uh, my share of musical theater too, only only in high school, but I, I remember what it's like. And there is a certain degree to which any kind of sustained creative effort requires um, ambition, which is disproportionate to the results. You know, like even even the stuff that we do on the blog here, right? <laughs> like as a, as as much as we all kind of acknowledge our own limitations in the back channel, right? And, like, say, oh, okay, well, maybe, you know, I know that this is silly, but just go with me because, right? Like, there is that kind of uh, mad commitment, you know, half-consciously in the back of your minds that, like, that this uh, this thing that, uh, that I'm writing here about uh, Gossip Girl is, like, the, the, a new pioneering milestone in critical discourse. There, right? there would have to be because there's no way to to uh, there's no way to sustain the effort otherwise, right? Yeah, like yeah. the the number of uncompensated man hours, right? That has gone into overthinking it or into any of these sort of passion projects that you see on the internet now. Yeah, like yeah. we, we, we have been remarkably consistent about ours, which is incredible. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you know us, but um, <laughs> yeah. like incredible, not in the sense of awesome, but incredible in the sense of defies belief. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, right. But everything. And like, yeah, absolutely. Like, like, and, and really to do any – really making anything is unreasonably hard uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the world. And so the people, the people who do it uh, are slightly deluded. And I guess that's why I guess that's why I am – I'm always kind of uncomfortable to see people um, – you know, to see people mocked for their delusions because th- those delusions are, are a necessary – uh, necessary part of the enterprise, uh, not a sufficient part. Like it, it requires mm. delusions plus talent. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like yeah. the um, uh, or yeah, delusions plus talent, and then a, a heap and helping of of luck to um, mm-hmm. to actually to actually make it work. But uh, right, like yeah, but like, but yeah. I mean, it's um, I think that one of the the interesting things about this one is that like. Well, first of all, that um, that some aspects of the show that you see are actually great. Like, their costumes and their lighting are near professional level. Some of the costumes beyond professional level, right? Sure. Like, the Boogie Woogie Bagel Boy that you see for two <laughs> seconds is a pretty incredible bagel costume. Yeah, that's fantastic. Although, I feel like they had, like, a slice of American cheese on the bagel, which, uh, attention, UK, that's not something that you do. Exactly. All right. No, <laughs> um, no but, absolutely not. Uh, yeah. Bagel Mitschmier. Yeah. yeah. Although, I mean, in in a way, it's kind of perfect because they do bring that up, right? Is that he says, like, this is the tragedy of my people. It's like, you know, this is the tragedy of my people. And they're like, are you American? He's like, yes, I am. Right. Um, That, like, that, yes, a a non American representation of the bagel would, of course, put a slice of American cheese on it, right? That makes it more American. There is no more, there is no more appropriate topping. Uh, yeah. you know, right. Exactly. Then, yeah. uh, then American cheese. I, you know, I was once, um, a long time ago, I was part of a, a group that was hired to go do uh, children's theater in Japan. And so mm. I, I, you know, lived in Japan for a period of, of several weeks and, and, uh, uh, was the producer was a, was a, um, a, a business in Japan that taught English through drama, so through mm-hmm. having the kids do plays, and so their most um, advanced. And I think we did children's theater, so I think we were doing this. Uh, we were doing Alice in Wonderland, a musical version of Alice in Wonderland at the time, and their most uh, advanced. Um, students were allowed to come on stage with us and be like extras in our show. You know what I mean? Be like extra playing cards, you know, that ran around the stage, you know, uh, kind of bending right in a very rigid way, like a playing card. Um, and uh, so uh, apparently the costumes, because we didn't bring costumes for the kids, we you know we only brought our own production, uh, which because it was expensive because it had to be you know uh, taken via airplane to Japan. Um, uh, we brought our own costumes. The, the kids' costumes were made uh, by the mothers, and they all sewed these, you know, these kind of sandwich board kind of smocks, right? Mm-hmm. That had uh, 
the fantastic, you know, bicycle deck of cards pattern on the back, and then, you know, hearts and spades and clubs and diamonds and, and numbers and things like this. And they, they were done with such, uh, such incredible panache by, I, I think, uh, everyone's mother. And I, you mm-hmm. know, and I thought, I thought like, I, I, I guess, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, the people who do, who do some of the technical aspects of community theater are often like quite skilled and, and, and very dedicated and, and don't get a lot of, uh, don't get a lot of credit. I wonder if it's, I mean, you know, there, there's more subsidy for arts and and I think a a better place for it in, in a a kind of more secure place for it in education in England. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I think that, that some of the production aspects, I mean, I've I, you know I've been involved in in capa- several capacities in high school productions that were that good, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, sure. And I mean, I, I don't think that I, it's, uh, technically. That it's I mean, in terms of in terms of lighting, anyway. Yeah, but yeah, uh, I, I, I'm not saying it's unrealistic, but I'm saying that it's like um, that. I don't think that the ambitions in this play are completely mocked. You know, like there are aspects of it which are shown to be legitimately impressive, which you wouldn't get. Without that ambition, also you know, a the, good the fact band, that uh, the fact right? that Jal, who has been sold to us as like the the gifted musician, right, is sitting there in her skyscraper hat playing her clarinet very seriously throughout the whole thing. You know, she's not above this. Yeah, I was about to say uh, that the band, like, if you ever go to to High School Musicals, one of the worst parts often is that the band is out of tune or something something like that. I uh, I once I once saw a show at a high school where the timpani were out of tune, and if the timpani are out of tune, pretty much everything higher than the timpani will sound terrible. Right, right. Uh, and the, so, the, the timpani very much decides what the tune is. It is not mm-hmm. out of tune with you. You are out of tune with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and um, the band, you know what I mean? The band is the band is very good. It's just the you know, it's just the subject matter that is, um, uh, uh, you know, that is is mockable. Yeah. Um, but even even there, I feel like with that character of the drama teacher, um, I mean, yes, his his show that he's written that he cares so deeply about is awful. But I think that um, in sort of his, his little arc through the episode, when you see him at the fancy dress party, like sitting off to one side writing lyrics, which he thinks are brilliant and are in fact awful, um, that's actually sort of the humanizing, redemptive part of what he does. And when he's making a pass at Michelle, that's like... That's when he becomes really a figure of uh, of mockery and loathing because he can't even be true to the artistic ideals of his terrible play, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to have a terrible play, you may as well live up to it. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, but I think that that's there's something that, uh, and this is just kind of a. a a stock character, the deluded creative type. So when we when we look at someone like uh, like Ed Wood, you know, I don't pretend to know what Ed Wood was really like, but the the myth of Ed Wood that has come down to us is that he threw himself into his terrible, terrible projects with a messianic uh, energy. You know, I mean, you see this in in a movie like uh, like John Waters is uh, Cecil B. Demented, right? Or like literally, the people are killing themselves to make a terrible, terrible movie. Like the fact that they are committed to it is itself a kind of redemption. If they were to you know spend half their time being really committed to it, and then the rest of the time kind of uh, I don't know trying desperately to get a slightly better paying job as a rehearsal pianist for a real musical or something like that, then that would be much more loathsome, I think. This is the thing. I mean, this is the thing I I think ultimately that, well, not to, not to suck our own dicks or anything, but this is the thing that ultimately (laughs) (laughs) that distinguishes uh, a, a, a say like overthinking it, from a a lot of uh, you know slightly more delusional efforts like we do grind it out every day you know you know what i mean like that, that is to say we do you know we do put a product out and if you go back and read our early articles the product that we put out now uh is better you know than the product that we put out uh 2 years ago uh you know speaking only for myself i've i i've i've improved by stopping writing 
Uh, I, I, I always feel like you should write more, man. Yeah. Well, th- thank you. Uh, I, I podcast. I write with my voice. My, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you do all the editing and everything, which I, I can understand why you don't have time to write. But uh, You people. You people keep me busy. Um, well, John Parrish actually is taking over a lot of that now. Anyway. But, but uh, yeah, but you, you, you grind it out with your mouth. Uh, <laughs> I should make that the title. Um, <laughs> grind it, grind it, grind it out with your mouth. And you know, I guess it's just a final inspirational thing for everyone who's out there, like with your own diluted artistic, uh, uh, artistic ambitions. I'd say this, you know, it's not your place to say whether it's good or not. You know, if you're capable of doing something good, it will be good. And if you're not, well, then it won't be. But you really don't have a lot of control over that. So really, continue, persist in your delusions. Uh, uh, you know, do it. Yeah. But work, you know. Yeah. Do- um, which isn't to say quit your day job. Yeah, but- <laughs> no, 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 right. Yeah, absolutely. Matt Rather told me that I didn't need to put food on my child's table. I just had to, you know, uh, I just had to follow my bliss. Um, no, uh, you become sketch pretty quickly doing that, mm. but, uh, uh, but do it, do it every day, you know, do it, do it, uh, <laughs> do it for the artistic, um, expression, do it for the creative thrill, do it for the uh, satisfaction of, uh, you know, practice, get better, do it for the satisfaction of seeing your skills improve <laughs> more than anything else. Do it for these Fucking teenagers. Teenagers.